0: Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, it's
1: Max. Before we get started, uh, you guys have heard some ads on the show. It's how we keep this thing going, and in order to find great advertisers... We need to know a little bit about who's listening to the show. So if you could do me a favor, it would be to uh, go to podsurvey.com slash long form. Take this quick anonymous survey. It's going to help us uh, get to know who's listening to the show a little better. And then we can tell the advertisers and then they give us money and then we get to keep making the show. And it's a win for everybody. It can also be a win for you because if you go fill out the survey, you'll have a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, so the thing to do, if uh, you would be so kind, podsurvey.com slash longform, P-O-D-S-U-R-V-E-Y.com slash longform. Thank you for your help. Here is the program.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, your co-host. I'm joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Hello? Hey, hey guys. Hey. Greetings. Is this
3: our first show since the live show? As far as I can remember. I think first one I remember. It's actually if, if it's there's actually another not. one that was taped in advance. <laughs> hey, look, this is all this is all mirage, okay? <laughs> we taped these all on one day one very long week in a dark basement. I want to thank everyone who came out to the show. It was a lot of fun. We want to do more. Uh, if you want to hear a long form podcast in your city. Let us know, but um, we're, we're we're trying. It only took us six years to start doing live shows.
1: Well, that's not true. We've done a couple over the years. They've all just been uh, technical disasters. And this is the first one where it wasn't a disaster. So thanks also to the Bell House for making it not a disaster.
3: This is the first one where I've not immediately uh, wanted to destroy all evidence that it occurred.
2: <laughs> and thanks to people who bought a book. Very yes. kind people yeah. who bought a copy of the Mastermind
3: and t-shirts thanks to everyone who bought a t-shirt thanks for all the patience we showed up I'll give you like a little uh, backstory for people who uh, want to know about what really goes into making a podcast like this showed up with uh, a lot of t-shirts no way to process credit cards for those t-shirts <laughs> so uh, shouts out to the people from uh, Greenlight Books for uh, lending us uh, their uh, square reader also
1: shout outs to um, Aaron Lammers former life as a bouncer I feel like you, you tapped into that old role of yours and uh, bullied people into buying the book and buying T-shirts. You're just a, a generally a strong man as well as, have, a, uh, as, well as a hype man, and uh, you're, you're I, saying I appreciate I have it.
3: A, I have a background in bullying.
1: <laughs> you, have, you have a background in, in bouncing. That was uh, your profession for some time
3: i uh uh to be to be totally honest since some um, i'm sure someone will call me out on it i was actually front door security uh not not a bouncer but i did i was previously employed at the knitting factory uh and uh i uh i like to think i know my way around a venue and uh that i can shame someone into buying a book and we succeeded evan you sold when i looked at that pile of books it was like three feet taller than, than
2: it was by the end of the night. You must have sold some books. Some some books went out the door, indeed. More books
1: should go out the door. Go get your uh, copy of The Mastermind, Evan's incredible new book. The
2: link is in the show notes. Evan, who would you have on the show? Uh, this week on the show, I had uh, Christy Ashwandan, who uh, is a science writer. She is an incredibly prolific freelancer over the years. Uh, most recently, she's been the lead science writer at uh, 538. But she currently has a book out called Good to Go. It's about the science of recovery. It is uh, in part an extended exercise in debunking a lot of recovery, athletic recovery techniques, including things like Gatorade. Uh, It's really, it's a fun read. And uh, I had a lot of fun talking to her.
3: Hey, if you're looking to debunk something, uh, no better way to do it than in an email newsletter. It's uh, the box people actually read is their email. So whether you are a business, uh, you are a writer, or perhaps you are a writer business, uh, you should check out MailChimp. They make it really easy to get a newsletter up and running. You might find a few years down the line that it pays off when you're, like, say, selling your uh, book or something.
2: Speaking of writer businesses... I just want to have uh, throw out one more thanks, which is to Taffy Brodesser ackner who uh, oh, yeah. came to the event at the Bell House, brought down the house, was by far the most popular figure to appear on stage or anywhere in the venue. Thanks, Taffy, for coming on the show. You should go pre-order her novel.
1: One of my favorite de- in the show notes. One of my favorite debunkers, Taffy Brodesser ackner incredible debunker. Okay, here's Evan with Christy Ashwanden.
2: Christy, welcome to the podcast.
4: Thanks so much for having me.
2: Yeah, uh, You're in from Colorado. Colorado, yeah. I read a little bit of, you, you, you've you written some accounts of right. like, where you live and how you found it, and uh, <laughs> I have to admit, a little bit of envy over what sounds like a really idyllic living situation. Yeah. Wait, I'm describe, sort of like... <laughs> describe, like, what, what <laughs> where do you live?
4: I live on a 16-acre farm in western Colorado, sort of in the middle of nowhere, but it's a beautiful, beautiful location. Great views, wonderful outdoor activities, which is sort of what brought us to that region. Yeah. And my husband is a winemaker, which is totally unexpected. <laughs> He's actually a, an aerospace engineer by training, wow. um, but got really interested in wine, learned how to make it. And next thing we know, uh, well, not next, it, it happened <laughs> not quite that fast, but now we have a boutique winery out, out there in no Western kidding. Colorado. Yeah. So you
2: grow, you also grow your own... Grapes.
4: Yeah, so we have a small vineyard, and then we source grapes from other parts of Colorado, all within like a hundred miles of our house, though.
2: Oh wow! Yeah. Well, we could just talk about that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... I could
4: talk endlessly about wine. What do we do? We it just made a this whole thing of yeah. wine, uh, just yeah. a wine discussion. Well, you know, it's funny for the book for promotion. So we were just we just started bottling our twenty sixteen vintage. And so I had this idea. I actually made some wine labels, and I labeled a few cases of our wine with the good to go with my new book jacket, basically. (laughs) It's been so fun. I've been giving those out as sort of party favors and Uh, thank yous for bookstores and whatnot. It's been really fun.
2: Good marketing. So you're here because you're a writer. Yes. A science writer? Do you call yourself a science writer?
4: Oh, I love that you asked that because I often uh, get letters from readers saying, You call yourself a science oh, writer. Really? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I do call myself a science writer. I'm, a, I'm actually a scientist by training. I thought I was going to be a biologist, turned to journalism, and sort of never looked back.
2: Okay, so I want to talk about that first, sure. and then we'll get to the book. Um, which is absolutely fascinating, and also like undid a number of assumptions oh, that I had about. Yeah,
4: I want to know. I want to know what training. I overturned for you.
2: <laughs> yeah, a lo- I, pretty much everything. Yeah. everything that I thought about <laughs> like how you train for sports, right. I now have thrown out the window. Uh, fortunately, I'm old enough that I don't really train for sports anymore, so it's fine. But first, I wanted to talk about that part, which is sort of getting into journalism. So you were trained as a scientist. So originally, what did you set out to do? Or what yeah, were I thought I was going to do? be a
4: scientist. I was going to get my PhD and be a professor or at least, you know, doing science research. And so I started off as an undergrad. I was doing ecology work, working. in. The, so I also really loved doing field work because I love being outside. Like Being outside trumps being inside for me in a lab. Um, But then after I got my undergraduate degree, I went on and did research for several years in various labs. And at that point, I started doing some genetics research. I actually did a little bit of work on the Human Genome Project. Hmm. So uh, for those people who know anything about this stuff, I was doing a lot of PCR, writing a lot of gels, um, moving little amounts of liquid from one little test tube to another.
2: And this is like mid-90s, late-90s? Yeah,
4: yeah. Mid to late-90s.
2: So the next step in that would have been PhD.
4: PhD. So when you get a PhD, it's like very, very specialized. Like you don't just say, okay, I'm going to get a PhD in genetics. It's like, I'm going to get a PhD in like this really esoteric little thing. (laughs) (laughs) Like What I found is I could not find that thing that I wanted to specialize in. I really, and this is one of the takeaways I think, is that I'm actually a generalist by heart. Hmm. My passion is very widespread. I'm interested in a lot of different things. And that's one thing that's been really great about being a journalist is that I can, sort of look at all these different things, write about a a great variety of topics instead of being really put into one little corner.
2: And when you decided to sort of stop down the science road and to change course, did you then, did you go to school for journalism or did you just say, I'm going to take the experience I have and just try to find a, a writing job
4: yeah so no so I did actually go to a program at University of California Santa Cruz the program still exists it's a science oh, communication yeah. Yeah, program. program yeah and they, they sort of specialize in turning scientists into journalists so it was great it was a great program for me and at the time I had been working at this biotech company and I had worked at this company like from the time it had started in someone's lab and sort of moved into you know bigger companies so I was there during this transition where like at one point like they decided we needed to wear lab coats at all times and name tags and like things really changed and but one of the changes was that we were no longer allowed to bring our bikes in the building and so I was a cyclist and you know rode my bike to work and so I got not just me some of us got really upset about this and so I wrote a letter to the CEO and was writing I actually started a little company newsletter and started writing for that and at the same time they had just hired their first communications person who had been sort of a career freelancer, a science writer. Hmm. And he said, wow, you're a really great writer. Like, have you ever considered science writing? And I was sort of like, huh, what's that? You know, it was sort of a lack of imagination on my part, really.
2: And But that's interesting that that person had made the transition into communications, and, yeah. but was telling you... You should go do. Right. Go journalism. do journalism.
4: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> did,
2: did you say, well, why aren't you? Did you know anything about the industry where you're like, why aren't you doing journalism? Oh God, I anymore? knew
4: nothing. I knew nothing at all. And it was funny. I do remember um, he actually gave me the best piece of career advice I've ever gotten, which was just go figure out what you want to do and then do it. And this sounds like terrible advice, right? Like, well, OK, if I, you know, if only it were that easy. But in some ways it sort of is. And what I mean by that is, If you think of it in terms of what do i want to be doing not what do i want to be like not what do i want my title to be but like for instance for me i really like engaging with ideas i like talking to people i like learning new things like i get bored very easily so one of the things i love about journalism is every time i start a new story i'm learning something new and i'm sort of moving on to some other topic and so like i know that i like learning new things so I'm doing a career where I'm learning things and I'm talking to people. So it's actually the sort of doing part rather than the being part. And I think that that's a really important distinction that a lot of people miss because they make career goals that are focused on so, for instance, I want to write for The New Yorker instead of, you know, well, what does that mean? And what is it about that that is appealing to you? Is it because you want the prestige of working for a magazine that everyone's heard of? Mm-hmm. Is it that, you know, you really love long-form writing? Do you like that kind of reporting? Like, really breaking it down. And oftentimes when you do this, you realize that, like, that goal isn't really what you want.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, especially, I mean, how many people you encounter who get that thing, whatever that thing is, and then realize that it's not at all satisfying to them. So how did you get a foothold into that coming out of that program?
4: So I came out of the program, moved to Santa Cruz. I actually got married at the time during the program. And so my husband wanted to move back to Boulder and I did too. And so we were supposed to do internships after the program and the director of the program at the time had this whole like career planned out for me, which wasn't exactly what I wanted to do. It was funny. i remembering now that he actually had some internships set up for me where I was going to be on some research ship like in the Arctic or something, and I'm like, first of all, I hate ships. I do not want to be on a boat, <laughs> but also I don't want to be away from my new husband. And you know, I'm a mountain girl, not a not a ocean person. Anyway, but I went back to Boulder where there wasn't an established internship in science writing, and I made an internship for myself at KGNU, the local NPR station. Yeah. And in fact, it was really how does
2: one make an internship <laughs> for themselves?
4: Um, I called up the radio station and said, here here I am. Here's what I'm doing. Could I do an internship? And it just so happened that they had a science show and they needed warm bodies. And, you know, it's public radio. Public radio is always sort of looking for help. (laughs) And, you know, if I was like, okay, I'm an intern. I'm willing to do this for free. You know, I really, truly thought that I was going to go back to Boulder. I was going to work at the radio station and hopefully I would like it and sort of something would come of it. But I also thought, you know, if things really go south, maybe I can get my old lab job back. Like I wasn't even completely Mm. like sure at that point that I was going to make a go of it. And I I thought, well, I'm going to try freelancing. And everyone told me you can't freelance out of school. Like you have to have a staff job. Like you just it's impossible. And and I actually sort of believed them. But I I kind of just kept going anyway. So (laughs) and it worked out.
2: So have you been basically a freelancer your whole career since then?
4: I have been a freelancer my whole career except for the four years that I worked at five thirty eight.
2: Oh right. Okay. Yeah. I'm fascinated with that much freelancing, first yeah. of all. Um you actually teach a course on freelancing to I people. I do, like, I do. Here is how you do it. And so how did you financially like how did you manage it? Especially like out of the gate. So you yeah you're working for free at the radio station and then you start Trying to work for other places or pitch other places. How do you support yourself? How do you start out?
4: Yeah, it was tricky. So I started off the first year. I just I had it set up so that um, we had a really cheap living situation. We were living with a friend, sort of helping to take care of his house, and so like we basically had cheap rent. And it was kind of like, okay, I'm gonna try this for a little while and see. And it was always like, okay, I know I can make this work for a few months, and like always pushing that few months out a little bit. But I remember in those early days, I was really working my butt off and I had a couple of clients that I was working for. Um, So for instance, the journal Science Science Magazine had, they still have this, it's called Science News. It's like a daily news site. And I was writing for that. And I knew exactly how many of those I needed to write per week in order to like make my rent and things. So I mean, it was really-
2: It's like systematic.
4: Yeah. And I think part of it is from the get go, I had to make money at it. Like it wasn't something that I could, I didn't really have any cushion to be able to, you know, just- screw around with it for a year and see whether it was going to work. Like I really did have to make money. And so I had to be very strategic about it. So then the other thing that happened that was, this was sort of like my lucky break and that, you know, you really have to have a combination of luck, but also like working hard and skill and all of that. And I started also writing for new scientists pretty early on. I had actually um, been able to pitch and get a story while I was in the Santa Cruz program. And so that kind of got me started with that and You know, introduced me some to some editors there, got my foot in the door. Mm -hmm. But then Health Magazine at that point was in San Francisco. It had Uh, used to be. It actually started off being much more medical. It was, I think, it had evolved from a magazine that was actually targeted at doctors. I could be wrong about that, but in the earlier days, it was much more sort of technical and medicine focused. And so they were hiring like a, a. entry-level news writer. And this was based in San Francisco, which is not where I wanted to live. And even back then, I don't think I could have afforded <laughs> to live there. on that salary. But anyway, but I went to them and I said, you know, I don't want the job, but I want to write for you. And I just so happened to be going to, I think there was a, a medical conference in Denver. And I said, I'm, I'm going to this conference here, are like six stories that I could write for you. And they said, wow, that sounds good. Why don't you do that? And so I did. And like, I mean, it was Probably within six months or a year that I was on the masthead there. And this was back in the days where being on a masthead as a freelancer meant that you got, like, you know, a retainer and all these nice things that sort of don't seem to exist anymore. Um, Cover to find. Yeah, it is. But I, I will never forget. Um, you know, when they told me they were making me a contributing editor and I was going to be on the masthead. And I just, I really had the sense of like, wow, I'm really making it here. And it was really exciting.
2: Didn't they have a, this may be apocryphal, but I feel like I did live in San Francisco around that time. And then Health Magazine got bought by some company that moved them to Birmingham. That's
4: absolutely correct. It went from Embarcadero Center to like Birmingham, Alabama.
2: what, What I saw was they offered everyone to keep their jobs and and moved to Birmingham and like one person yeah. did it or yeah, something. Like that's no exactly right. Like no one wanted right. to go and they just restaffed the whole thing. They restaffed thing.
4: and they moved it. So it was owned by Time Inc. at that point. And mm. so they moved it to another division of Time Inc. It was like Southern Progress, I think, something like that. So it was like joining such titles as like Southern Living. And I think there was like Cooking Light or something like that too. So yeah, it, things changed very rapidly at that point. But I actually continued writing for the magazine. And in fact, I was a contributing editor for them for at least 10 years so it was interesting. It was kind of, yeah, I feel like this is somewhat rare because this is kind of a regular happening in magazines where new staff will come in and they kind of fire everyone. And, but that was um, one instance in which I kept writing for them through like three different editorial regimes.
2: So then how did you start filling in? I mean, I'm I, looking on your website, it said something like you've written for more than 40 publications. Oh, <laughs> yeah. like, At some like point, I stopped, insane... <laughs> I stopped counting.
4: I actually counted the last time that I did an, an actual count. And this was like probably eight years ago or something. It was over 60. And I think some of it is that I just, I, like, this goes back to, like, my diverse interests. It's funny. I remember preparing for one of my talks about freelancing, and I had actually gone back to look at what I'd done in the past year, and I had written for the Journal Cell, which is, like, this very technical thing. I'd written for Oprah Magazine. I had written for, like, Men's Journal and Runner's World, like, all in the course of, like, three months. So I think that kind of diversity, though, really gives me more stability than I would have you know, working in one place or doing just one thing. And so being very specialized in what I'm writing about, my interests have always been really diverse. And so I think the common thread is that science at some level, for the most part, I I also like to write essays, and I've done quite a bit of that, and sort of personal essay Mm -hmm. sort of stuff. But science is kind of the thread. And I, I guess if there's a way in which I've specialized, it's been... Writing about science for publications that aren't science specific. Mm-hmm. So I've done a lot of uh, writing about science for sports magazines, for general interest magazines, for women's magazines, for Lab Max. Yeah, know, things Mother like
2: Jones. That. Like I'm yeah, just, your byline is it's everywhere. <laughs> but so in that, I'm really curious in the the like mechanics of of that diversity? Like, do you say, okay, here's an idea and a thing I want to write about and now I have a list of publications I'm going to go try this one, try this one, try this one, try this one? Or is it like you have certain things you do for one and then you have certain things you do for another? Like, how do you even keep it all organized?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So some of it is just about like keeping the ideas in my head. But what will often happen is so much of freelancing is about relationships, not so much even relationships with publications, but with editors. And so what I found is that once I work with an editor, like it's that relationship that sort of sticks. And so that editor can move somewhere else. And in fact, so many of the magazines that I've worked for, like have been by happenstance, the editor that I was working with at one magazine moved somewhere else. And now all of a sudden, I'm working for that magazine. And then maybe I'm meeting new editors at that magazine and spreading out. But so much of it really is that sort of personal relationship. And so I do find that I kind of focus on, so who are the editors that I really like working with? And so I'm always sort of looking for ideas that I know will be a good fit for them.
2: And do you have amidst all that Was it always sort of, if you could just do anything you wanted, you would be doing one type of writing? If it didn't require that, you know, that having that diversity to make a living, would you say, okay, I would rather just be doing one? Or do you actually love the short, the long, the, like I brought up Mother Jones. I mean, that's a very long story. The one that I was looking at was a very long story about mammograms and Mm -hmm. their efficacy and like a really, really like probably four or 5,000 words, like digging very deep. And then you've got things that are much much shorter that are quick hits and then you've written for consumer reports about chicken that's also like crazy in depth like so i guess my question is like how much of that is you truly have an interest in all that range versus like that's part of making a living
4: i think it's a little bit of both actually because it is so look i love long form and i really like doing like deep investigations like i love reporting i hate writing (laughs) i really do and i feel like anyone who says they love writing is probably not a good writer
2: (laughs) they're out there no they're out i mean i don't know about that would say love writing there's definitely the like i mean david remnick is like the classic right So he just like sits down and he knocks Mm -hmm. it out yeah i don't i don't know that even he would say that he loves it maybe but He doesn't feel the feelings that the rest of us feel. I I hate writing. I love
4: having written, right? I think that's (laughs) how most of us feel. And so, yeah, the long form stuff is the most satisfying. It's the stuff that I, you know, on one level enjoy the most, but I don't think that I would be as happy, like just, you know, say having a contract with the New Yorker where I write five long form pieces a year because writing one of those pieces just takes so much emotional energy. And they, they really, I don't know. I find that when I'm all in on one of these stories, which you have to be all in, right? To do your best work, you have to be all in, which means you're sort of thinking about it all the time. It's consuming your life, and there is something sort of unpleasant about that. So Mm -hmm. I like having other things that I'm doing too and shorter stuff as well so that you can kind of have a more balanced life, I guess.
2: And how how do you sort of generally think about science writing in terms of the the goal? Because I feel like there's different perspectives on whether it's sort of translate, like it's mm-hmm. a translation job that you're really taking expertise and sort of like presenting it versus approaching it more like regular news reporting. Mm-hmm. Like, what do you have a sort of philosophy that you operate under? Because you also write about a, a very wide range of subjects from like, I do. you know, climate change to health. You know, you're not in one area. So do you have a philosophy you bring to all of those?
4: Absolutely. I'd say my philosophy is like, Trust but verify. So I am not a a science booster. Look, I love science. I believe in it. I think belief's the wrong way of putting it. I mean, it's it's not a belief system, (laughs) but I do think that science is the most powerful way that we have to understand the world. And so, you know, as an enterprise, I think it's you know solid humans, maybe not so much. And so, you know, I think that it's very important that I approach the subject just as I would if I were a political reporter in the same way that I would report on politics so that, you know, I'm not just saying, well, these are all scientists, so they must be great people and everything's on the up and up. You know, I've written a lot about reproducibility issues and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's been some pretty high profile cases of fraud in science. And so I think it's really important that we're not just translators of science, that we're, you know, skeptical reporters as well. And that's sort of the slant that I take on it
2: what role has your science training played? Does that feel like that's helped you in understanding?
4: I think it it helps me. It has helped me to understand the culture of science a lot and to understand sort of what, for instance, what graduate students go through and postdocs and sort of the whole career path with science and sort of how that system works. So even though I only went a short way through that, I was in that world long enough to sort of see how it works and to Mm -hmm. understand that culture which i think is a really important thing to understand if you're to understand you know what the stakes are and what the you know sources of bias are and all of that
2: yeah and even when you look at a paper and you sort of look at the list of authors right. and sort of understand, like, who's who in this situation and yeah. what it means to talk to different people who are involved as opposed to just being like, oh, look at this scientific paper. Like,
4: Absolutely. Yeah. And I think my background did help me initially to figure out how to read papers. And it gave me, I think, more than anything, it gave me confidence that I was capable of doing that so that I wasn't intimidated and I wasn't thinking, oh, I can't do this. Um, but it also, I'll say that my sort of strategy for reading papers has changed and evolved. Mm. Um it used to be I would give a lot more credence to abstracts. And now I know that the most important thing and probably the thing to look at first is the methodology. Because if the methodology is not good, like everything else is not worth much.
2: But (laughs) This comes up a lot in your book.
4: Yeah, right, right, exactly. And the other thing is I've just encountered so many instances where, you know, there are things that are said in the abstract and sort of the sort of next step Like, here's the results and here's what it means. And so often that here's what it means is not supported by the paper itself. So, again, it's taking a critical eye and looking at it, you know, through a skeptical lens.
2: Have you had situations where you've sort of gotten into it with scientists? I feel like in my own experience of writing about science, you often encounter scientists who who disapprove of the way that you've taken their research and tried to explain it in a more, I don't know, palatable way for an ordinary reader. Is that something you encounter much?
4: I think I've encountered that the most. I've written a lot about cancer screening. And Mm. in particular, I sort of started down this road writing about mammography, which I started writing about very early in my career. And it kind of, in a way, it almost set me down this path because it opened my eyes to like, oh, you can't always just trust the experts. Because what I ended up doing is I started reading the papers for myself. And sort of looking at the data and thinking, wait a second, this doesn't quite add up. And so a lot of what I've written about cancer screening is about the downsides of it and the fact that we have a problem called over-screening, where basically you're finding cancers that don't need to be found and returning healthy people into cancer patients. And this is a problem on a lot of levels. But what I will encounter is, say, radiologists who do a lot of these tests saying, no, no, it's great. We're catching all these cancers. We're saving lives. And it's hard to argue with, but it really, you know, and this is complicated stuff. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I write about things that are truly, you know, sort of controversial within the field. And so researchers may not like the way that I present their side, or they may feel like I'm taking a side, you know, that they don't agree with.
2: Yeah. Like if you show up at a conference, is there, are they sort of like, ah, you're the, (laughs) you're the anti-screening Yeah,
4: it was funny. I was once invited to go speak at a cancer – it was like a cancer conference that – Soon became apparent to me when I got there that, like, the purpose of this conference was to, like, to increase screening. And there were all these talks about, like, how do we get more people screened? And so I stood up and gave this talk about, like, actually, more screening shouldn't be the goal. We should be making sure we're finding the right cancers. And, you know, it was a much more nuanced thing. But, and I had one person point at me and say, if people follow your advice, they'll die. And I just thought, okay, first of all, I'm not actually giving, like, straight advice. I'm not giving medical advice. You know, t- I'm anyway. talking to you, yeah, not right. to the exactly. general public area, but- <laughs> Yeah, but people feel passionate. They do.
2: Yeah. And they, I mean, I guess at some level it is a life and death situation. So.
4: And I think that one, one important issue here is that scientists are human like anyone else. And so, you know, they become attached to their ideas and, you know, they are arguing about things and it can get ugly just like in any other field. So I don't think, you know, sometimes people sort of act like scientists occupy this sort of more heralded space and they're better people than I, you know, scientists are great, but you know, there's some bad scientists just like there's bad economists.
2: <laughs> so you also over these years were a very active athlete, I know from the book. And that's sort of like it gives you like a dual set of qualifications for right. the book. Like you have done high level training and you're also an accomplished writer. So what were your athletic endeavors over the years?
4: Yeah, so I started off as a runner and I was a runner in college, uh, University of Colorado, and then I got injured. And so in the meantime, I started, I learned how to cross country ski and I started cycling. So um, I joined the cycling team and uh, did that for a while. Um, And and where you
2: were on the cycling team with?
4: Tyler Hamilton. uh, Yes. Yes. And in fact, I think to this day, I think one of my favorite stories that I ever wrote was about that and about him and... And his whole ordeal yeah. there.
2: And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. Like people may, who don't follow cycling. I mean, I knew that name and I don't follow cycling. Right, So it's right. like, it's not Lance Armstrong, but it's, no, it's right it there. No, it was
4: one of Lance Armstrong's. I mean, he and Lance raced together on the postal service team for a while and then Tyler ran off onto his, his own team, um, but he was caught doping, insisted that he hadn't so he actually tested positive for blood doping and what ended up happening so basically they found someone else's blood they figured out a test where they could tell if you were injecting someone else's blood and that's what happened and you know, probably what Tyler thought was happening was he was getting his own blood back, it looks as though, I mean I don't know that we'll ever know exactly what happened mm-hmm. um, but anyway, but I think yeah, I think every writer has this sort of obsession and the story that they write over and over in different forms. And like for me, it's about belief and how do we decide what to believe and like how do we choose what evidence is credible and how do we make those decisions? And the story about Tyler was really about that because he was saying, you know, they had these t-shirts and they even had like dog collars because Tyler had these dogs that, you know, he was always talking about and famous for. And they had dog collars that said, believe. And so they had a believe Tyler fund. They were raising money for his defense. And so, you know, at the time that I wrote the story, I basically looked into the test and I looked into the circumstances and, you know, I had to decide what to believe because Mm -hmm. I had known Tyler in college we were friends. I mean, he was really known as like the nicest guy. We, we genuinely all thought he was the world's nicest guy and he was very generous and seemed very genuine. And you you just didn't want to believe that he had done it. And so, yeah, in the course of reporting and writing that story, I was really looking at this, like, why do we choose to believe things when sort of the evidence is staring us in the face, which in this case, it it sort of was. And I had gone in as a science writer, too, and really interrogated the evidence and talked to experts and looked at. And of course, Tyler found some experts that were willing to say, you know, he's probably innocent, whatever. But I wrote the story and basically concluded, you know, that that he had done it, and you know it was kind of tricky to write because, like, how do I write about this? Because I'm not. It would have been different if he was someone I didn't know. Right. But he had been a friend, and so that had to be part of the that story, the which story, of course yeah. it was. Um, yeah, you know, it was hard. I feel like there are some friends that I lost in the course of that who were really mad at me for believed, writing that.
2: Who believed him and thought who believed that believed
4: were... them and felt like I was betraying him. And so it was really, really awkward. And it was, it was hard because in the course of writing the story, I really, I mean, my views on Tyler changed radically because you know, I really came to believe that he was more of a huckster and was, was really in an ugly way manipulating people who were really, truly were good meaning people. And then, of course, like several years later, he went on sixty minutes and confessed. <laughs> of course, yeah. he never he never apologized to me, and you know, it was oh, really never, and never heard a word them. from him. And in fact, some of the other people in my story who had stood by him never got an apology, and it, it was a really, oh wow, it was a difficult situation for sure.
2: Yeah, so I mean, that question of belief does come up in the book. Oh wait, we were first going to talk about your other athletic endeavors, oh, yeah. we got, we got, yeah, we got sure. sidetracked there because you got into cross-country skiing.
4: Yeah, so I got into cross-country skiing in college, so I was kind of doing that. I had a knee injury that was preventing me from running, but I could start cross-country skiing. I was cycling. I was mostly cycling at that point. But then after I did the Santa Cruz program, I moved back to Boulder, and I thought, oh, I really want to kind of keep up with this skiing thing. And so um, I ended up pursuing cross-country skiing at a pretty high level for a while. I was traveling across the country and actually lived in Europe Um, to race over there for a while. Um, It was racing on a pro team.
2: Did your husband go too?
4: Yeah, he did. So he was a a pro cyclist when we met, and then I kind of got him into skiing, and we were doing that together. And he's actually a ski coach now at our local college. Oh, wow. Yeah.
2: So uh, that's all to say that the book is about the science of recovery, and you had experience with sort of high-level training. Yeah. So one question I had was, from the beginning of deciding to do the book I saw I mean you had written about some of these issues further back yeah like Mm -hmm. a while ago so how did it formulate itself into there's enough here that I I've decided I want to pursue it as a book
4: I'm like thinking about do I want to tell I feel like it's I
2: it sounds like a good story if you're if you're wondering whether to tell it it okay I should tell it but
4: I just I'm really self-conscious about the story so um Matt Weiland, my editor at Norton, who I absolutely love, I uh, adore him. He's a great editor. He actually came to me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing a book on recovery, and I thought oh, that doesn't—that sounds kind of boring.
2: Where did he? How did he know that was a?
4: I think book that idea. he's just a very astute observer of things, and he's an athlete himself. He's an avid soccer player, and so you know, this whole industry of recovery products has really just. Gone off, you know. It's it's a thing. Like, I think that he recognized that it was something worth looking into, and and that there was going to be commercial interest in that in those products. Um, And I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm really interested in that. It sounds a little bit boring. And at that point, I hadn't been writing as much about sports stuff. So there was a time when I was writing a ton for like Runners World and bicycling about you know, training things and mm-hmm. the science of training and, and that's interesting, but there's, you know, you sort of find yourself after a while writing the same stories over and over. And I was just feeling like, uh, I don't know if I want to keep writing about that.
2: You had a whole series about re- running with your dog.
4: I did. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that's great. My National Magazine Award finalist. Yeah, yeah. National Magazine yeah. Award finalists. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, so anyway, but then I started thinking about it and I, I thought, so going back to my obsession. So my, my sort of two obsessions are Um, how do we decide what to believe? How do we know what we know? How do people make decisions about what to believe? Um, But then as part of this, I've become very interested in the scientific method and reproducibility and sort of the way that science is carried out and sort of this idea that science is actually really difficult to do. It's really easy to get a result. It's really hard to get an answer. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing that really intrigued me. And I realized that this was an opportunity to write about that, like this really nerdy science stuff, but using this topic that people are really interested in and so i got on the phone with matt and i mean 10 seconds into talking with him i just knew that i would like do anything for this guy i really (laughs) wanted to work with him and you know my agent said you look just talk to him he's wonderful norton's great um so it went from there but it was interesting because you know i talked to him pretty soon after that i had the book deal but he said something really interesting which was okay so this is your idea like this is yours now go take it and run with it. So he was very clear from the beginning, like, even though he had sort of come to me with this idea, he was like, make it your own. And like, this is your thing now. Like he had never, during that whole process, exerted any sort of like, okay, no, it needs to be this and not that. He really gave me this freedom to like, figure out what it was going to be, which was not always easy, I'll say. (laughs) Um, It was actually pretty tricky. But it was really that opportunity to combine those two passions of mine. And also just the fact that, you know, I still am very interested in sport. So in a way, Mm -hmm. this book sort of encompasses all of the things I've been writing. You know, you talk about my diverse interests, but they're all sort of in this book.
2: This is a random question about the business of publishing, but I always wonder when that happens, was he so like, it's your idea that you could have sold it to a different publisher? Or would he have been like, that's my idea, you can't sell it (laughs) to another publisher?
4: That's a good question. I mean, they made a very nice offer so i think there wasn't incentive to take it just elsewhere went for it. yeah well, um, I mean, but i don't there was not a sense i think we could have yeah. i mean my agent and i talked about it and she said you know we we won't do that i mean if they <laughs> if they hadn't done i mean they if they hadn't made a nice offer maybe we would have done that but i think um yeah, you know just she's interesting, like how yeah. much
2: of an idea is a person's and like yeah. who owns what idea not owns like technically owns but sort of like there's a sort of. Oh,
4: yeah, there is, for uh, sure.
2: Yeah, it's always interesting because when it comes you, from an editor.
4: Yeah, and you can't really, like, you know, the execution of the idea is everything, right? Like, everyone's got ideas. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, it's not that ideas aren't worth anything, but they're worth so much less than the actual work of executing things. And And I think part of the reason that I was so, like, it felt so surreal getting this book deal is that, let's see, it was like 2010, I think, or so 2000. It might have been 2009. I spent a lot, great deal of time and effort writing a book proposal that did not sell. And this was sort of like at that point when publishing was just like totally tanking. And part of the reason I was like looking to write a book is that magazines had like totally shrank and Mm -hmm. no one was assigning and all that. Um, But I worked really hard on this proposal that did not sell. I mean, like it got zero offers.
2: Can you say what it was?
4: Yeah, it was about um, how would I describe it? It it was about moving to my farm and sort of um, creating this new life for myself there and living this rural life and sort of about that. And it was interesting because there were other books that like ended up selling around that time. They, they had actually sold a little bit before them, but were coming out on similar mm. topics. And it was just like, you know, crushed to the heart every time uh. I'd see one of these. And so it almost had like the two experiences that you can have in publishing, <laughs> which is one, like you work your ass off and you have your heart and soul in this thing and no one wants it. And they're like, sorry, No soup for you. And then on the other hand, where, you know, I feel like I sort of went out to lunch and and like looked down and there was a book deal on my lap. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Well, at least it happened in that order. So you earned earned the second one by having the first one happen to you. It's
4: true. I did. And I, I actually never felt like, oh, I'm not worthy of this or this isn't like, because I did also recognize that, yeah, actually, this is a good idea. And it is something that I'm perfectly suited to do. So I didn't, I actually did have one very severe case of imposter syndrome with this. And that was when it was very early on after I had signed the contract and my, editor took me out to this party with other editors and he was introducing me to all of these like fancy people and like I I knew nothing I still don't about the book publishing industry at that point so I Uh didn't know who was who was who but he was like oh and here's Christy and we're so excited about her book And and I was just like oh shit now I have to like really produce something
2: and did you from the moment of diving into it did you already have a sense that you were going to go try things that there was going to be a participatory part of the book
4: not as much actually i was very very certain that i did not want this to be a book that was like i did this thing or like watch me try all these things or i spent a year like i really didn't want to be in it at least not mm. very much and in fact the first draft that i turned in matt basically like all of the places that i was in he like circled them and said more like more of this he really wanted more of those first person scenes of me trying things out and yeah you know, that's not the bulk of the book, but it occurs a lot. and so, Yeah,
2: it kind of, it just brings you in yeah. to different topics and yeah but ways. I didn't
4: I didn't want it to be like exclusively about me and I didn't want it to be something where you're just sort of with me the whole time I mean there are long passages and maybe even chapters that I don't appear in mm-hmm. but that actually made it really really challenging to write because there's no central character there's no natural narrative arc I mean this is so naive of me but I actually thought this is gonna be a super easy book to write to write <laughs> because I, I'm just laughing at myself now because I thought well I can like off the top of my head think of like 12 things and I'll just explain them but like it turns out like you can't write a book that's like this is bullshit and that's bullshit and so is this you know like that's not interesting and so it was really challenging to like maintain this like narrative drive when you know so much of the message you know and I also had to figure out I mean there are literally like a thousand things that are being marketed for recovery and well so yeah I
2: was wondering about that like there, how do you even pick the ones that yeah. are worthy of examining.
4: It was hard and there were definitely times when I decided I'm not going to write about this because I just don't even want to give it the credit like even though I'm going to debunk it like even just acknowledging that this thing exists is giving it attention that it doesn't deserve. Oh interesting. So there were some things like that but in the end I kind of like there were a few things that I sort of put into categories so like I have a a chapter called Flushing the Blood where I'm talking about all of these claims about blood flushing and lactic acid and things like that so um, but I just there were a lot of things that I just decided I'm not I'm just not going to do every single one. I can't do every single one. So I'm going to do the ones that seem major, the things that people are really talking about a lot, the things that seem to have the most marketing behind them. Like I did not want to go out on book tour and have people asking me like, why isn't, you know, X, Y, or Z in there? So right. I really tried to cover sort of the basics. And so far that's been the case. I haven't I haven't found anything that like I seem to have been really neglecting. <laughs> Too overlooked. Yeah.
2: Well, I had, so I played ultimate frisbee for a long time i still play mm-hmm. ultimate frisbee but i, I pl- played yeah, pretty seriously for a while and i feel like in the late 90s and early 2000s it became more people who were more serious about it got into yeah. a lot of these different training both heavy training and i mean now it's very very serious there's it's a professional yeah. league and everything but also this recovery stuff mm-hmm. and i feel like you systematically every <laughs> there is a lot of debunking in there and it's like ice bath like ice bath was a thing that i was certain uh had positive <laughs> benefits right. and it It sort of maybe does in a very slight way. That's probably the placebo effect. Like, I feel like there was a lot of that. And part of it made me curious, just like, when you sort of said this, like, you can't just debunk everything. But did you go into it thinking, like, this is going to be a major debunking effort?
4: I I knew from the get-go that I was going to be doing a lot of debunking. I didn't know on specific things like, oh, for sure, this is you know not going to pan out or that was. As I started closely reading the studies, I saw that they sort of systematically all had similar flaws. So like, for instance, one of them is that these studies almost all suffer from very small sam- sample sizes. And there are some really good reasons for that. If you are studying athletes it can be really difficult to find them first of all and especially if you are looking for elite athletes there aren't that many elite athletes and then you want them to participate in your study which may mean that they need to alter their training programs or their recovery programs you're asking them to do something different than mm-hmm. what they're going to be doing and hmm. they may be in the placebo group so they may not even be getting like the cool thing that you're testing right so that that's hard that's the number one thing was a small sample size but there are other sort of systematic problems with them. And one thing that's really interesting is I've reported on so many different kinds of science. And one of the things that I've learned is that each field of science has sort of its own culture of like what's acceptable and like how do you do, you know, what kind of methodology is appropriate and what are you allowed to do, what aren't you allowed to do? And this varies really widely by field. So that's hmm. kind of interesting. And so yeah, the culture of sport science, it wasn't that sports scientists were like, oh, we don't really care about good methods. It's just that the culture of it and sort of the things that they were studying made it hard to do some of the things that are done, for instance, in clinical trials with medicine. In medicine, you know, you need sample sizes of 100 or more, and that's just really hard to do in sports science. But I had seen these problems and just some of the design problems where people would sort of change things around as they're going. So instead of deciding in advance what they were going to do and then sort of taking the results, (laughs) regardless, you know, doing the study and saying, well, you know, we're looking at this, but look, we see this interesting thing. So we're going to analyze this other subgroup and sort of play around. So Mm -hmm. it was stuff that wasn't, you know, again, it goes back to this idea that like in that field that was kind of considered acceptable. Mm -hmm. So what needed to change was maybe not even so much individual researchers, but just the culture and like what's acceptable.
2: And then, I mean, the other side of the sports science stuff that comes through in the book is that there's also, there's a sort of industry approach to it where people are doing their own studies or quote unquote studies in some sense. And then there's this great line where someone says, science is the best marketing. Yeah, yeah, A marketing person says science is the best marketing. Yeah. And that's like very cringeworthy (laughs) from the perspective of the scientific method. But there's also, I mean, I don't know if you meant it this way, there's like from the perspective of the people who are you know pitching some of these products some of which you go try mm-hmm. to me it's like their worst nightmare of someone like you showing up which is <laughs> right. like you use it and then you're like okay tell me how this works and they give you some explanation about platelets or what right. like some <laughs> science quote scientific explanation and then the next section is like a real scientist saying what what did they tell yeah, you right. that's nonsense <laughs> right. and 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 was that uh, in any way hard to do? Like, hard from a perspective of, like, they let you in to come yeah. try their thing. Yeah. And, like, they're obviously, like, cheerleading for it. Right. And then, like, you have to go and say, like, your thing is actually, yeah. it's bunk.
4: Well, and honestly, I think that's part of how these conflict of interest things come up because you have these nice people and, like, our human instinct is to want to be nice to people and to sort of want to believe them and not to rock the boat and not call people dumb and things like that. And so, yeah, there is this, I mean, I... I don't like calling people out on things like that. I mean, it is uncomfortable. I had a lot of really uncomfortable conversations. Actually, they were just mostly frustrating. A lot of frustrating conversations with product makers mm-hmm. where they would get, and so often I would say, Okay, I'm a science writer. I want to hear about the science. And they would put some marketing person on there. And they're just like reading these scripts that are just like gobbledygook. And they're using these scientific terms that they obviously don't know what they mean. And so as soon as I ask a real question, they're sort of like stuck in this loop of like, Well, I'm just going to repeat what I already said or, you know, and, and so I couldn't even like really get anywhere. It wasn't like they were, you know, insisting that their bad science was good science. It's that they just sort of were using these words without context. And it was almost like they're trying to use a language they don't speak. And so they were just kind of kept looking at the guidebook and saying, well, it says that this is the phrase to use, you know.
2: And are you, is your sort of reporter mode in the moment to be kind of like, okay, I'm going to write all that down. And then when you sit down to write it, you're like, okay, now's, now's my turn. Or in the moment, are you sort of, do you marshal the facts and try to have a confrontation with them
4: so my strategy is to usually basically give them all the rope they need to hang themselves and then while they're like taking their last breath say okay like let me just repeat this back or let me ask you know so i sort of let them do what they're going to do and then i like i want to get that good material too right so i sort of let them do that and then i come back at them and say okay what about this so like I remember specifically uh, Tom Brady's infrared pajamas and I, I was love like that part I, I love that part of the book. <laughs> but I was like okay so it's heat but it's like but if, and they're like oh infrared isn't heat and I'm like okay I learned in physics that it was heat and he said you know but so I, I you know I think it is important that you give them a chance to respond like I I don't think that you know you should not give them a, that opportunity but what was yeah. really frustrating here is that they just they didn't really know what to do with it and they would just So instead of them saying, well, actually, there's this other competing theory, you know, it's like, no, no. He's like, no, it's not heat energy. And it's like, okay, but it is. So you just kind of, there are many times where I just got to this impasse with people. Like, okay, where do we, we can't really go anywhere from here.
2: Yeah. And do you have any frustration at the idea that you can write a very cogent and well written takedown? Is maybe not the right word. It's not intentionally necessarily, but like an explanation of what's really going on here and why this thing, only works because of the placebo effect if at all yeah. and yet like Tom Brady's out there selling pajamas like, right. those pajamas are I don't know if this writing will have an effect on how many pajamas that right. Tom Brady will sell you know like do you feel like there's an you have a goal of like trying to get people to not buy this stuff
4: I don't know that I want them to not buy. I mean, look, I don't want people to buy stuff that's not going to help them or I don't want them wasting their money on this stuff. But one thing that's really interesting is that there are many instances while reporting this book where I found something that seemed truly effective, but it wasn't working, so they were using these pseudo-scientific explanations to promote something that was actually working, but it was working by a a different method or a different way. So I'll just give you an example. You know, there are these pneumatic compression boots and they feel really good. It's like basically like this massage for your legs, (laughs) right? And they feel really great. But basically, you know, to use them you put your legs up you sit there for like a half an hour and you're feeling really good and so yes it helps with the recovery because by definition recovery is relaxation and so they help you relax they make you feel good so yes that works but these explanations that are given about you know doing such and such to the blood and flushing lactic acid like that Mm -hmm. stuff's not true but that doesn't mean they're not working and they're not helpful but they're sort of helpful for some reason you know we we sort of put more credence into this you have to use science and scientific words or these studies, people just think, oh, wow, this, you know, there's this idea that science sort of turns everything that it touches into truth and to powerful, you know, things when, you know, a lot, a lot of times it's much more subtle.
2: One of the things, there was one study in particular that blew my mind, which was the the one where they had them eat McDonald's. For their recovery right. versus eating like all the marketed right. like cliff bar plus you know the things that are supposed to have like high mm-hmm. levels of this, that, and the other. Yeah. And they just did right. exactly the same. <laughs> yeah. Eating McDonald's. Yeah. Cause it's just yeah. like your body needs whatever when yeah. it's, you're training like crazy or whatever mm-hmm. they were they were doing. And I felt like there were a lot of those moments that were just uh like electrolytes and you just Point out the electrolytes are just salt, right? Um, but it was almost sad. Like there was there was like a woman who tested positive for some mm-hmm. banned substance, and then figured out that it was in something, was a supplement that she had taken, had it in there. That was, and she was like trying to get electrolytes, and you write right. something like she could have just. Eaten her breakfast, like salt in her breakfast. <laughs> I
4: know. Yeah, it was really sad. Like, you know, we've just been convinced that we need these special chemicals, which are actually just the salts that we get in the regular food that we eat. And she had taken electrolyte tablets because she was doing a race on a hot day. And we've been told that that's what you need in the heat. And she actually didn't need it. But now she took this stuff and she tested positive because, you know, all of these nutritional supplements, they don't have to adhere to the different regulations that pharmaceuticals do and so mm-hmm. you, you really can't tell what you're getting and this is a huge problem i mean it's a big enough problem that the u.s anti-doping agency actually has this whole education campaign going to try and convince athletes not to take this stuff but the problem is a lot of them a lot of the athletes and a lot of the teams are sponsored by the makers of these things so it's you know that's kind of a source of a lot of the conflict here
2: and do you now have so you've been out doing some events and things and the mm-hmm. book's been out not very long but uh, but a couple of weeks There's a kind of like way in which I could see you being viewed or asked to be more of a kind of guru. Like people want, I mean, the book does have, it's not like it's all debunking. Like it has things that you can do and what does matter and sleep. Mm -hmm. And a lot of them are just natural things that you should just do more of. Right. But first of all, I don't even know if this is a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. But do you resist that idea that people might want you to be like the person who now tells them what to do?
4: Right. I mean, so on the one hand, if the thing I'm telling them to do is to be skeptical and think twice about that stuff, I'm fine with that. I definitely don't want to become, though, you know, there's this thing that happens sometimes when people write books and then they become this sort of phenomenon where they're just sort of like believing their own bullshit. And I do not (laughs) want to become that person. You know, I am getting a lot of speaking offers and I enjoy speaking and I will do a lot of that. But I think it's really important to also sort of separate my own expertise that I got reporting this book from you know, the expertise of an actual scientist and things like this. And, you know, when someone stands up at my reading and asks me, you know, how should I recover? How should I train? I was like, no, that I'm I'm not here to answer that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, the other thing, the kind of like, at a broad level, the way you're looking at things in this book is you're saying, okay, not everything that says science or that uses scientific terms is, you should just accept it on its face. Like you need to look at what kind of science it is. But at the same time, you're writing about climate change and other issues where we're just like desperately trying to get people to accept yeah. even the most basic scientific facts that are established beyond any right, reasonable right. doubt. And between those, th- like those seem like almost two different efforts or how do you like square those efforts?
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. It's something that I have thought a lot about and kind of I worry a little bit. I don't want, like my book, Good to Go is not anti-science at all. I think it's quite the opposite. Yeah, But I think that in some ways, the argument that I'm really making is that we need to change the way we think of science. So we think of it as this hard and fast answer, when in fact, it's a process. It's a process of uncertainty reduction. And so you take something like climate change, and we don't understand every single aspect to a, you know the most granular level about climate change, but we understand a lot at this point. We've been studying it for decades and decades. And so although there is uncertainty within it, there are a lot of things that we are quite certain about. And so even though you know we may not be able to predict with absolute certainty what the max temperature next year is going to be, we can see that the trend is that it's getting hotter and hotter every year. And so we can be pretty certain that that is a trend that's actually happening. And so looking at it in the sports realm here, you know, we have these studies that are sort of presented as very certain when in fact they have a lot of uncertainty. And so the difference there is that, you know, you have one study with eight people. And so you can't really put a lot of credence in that. With climate change, we have thousands and thousands of studies, thousands and thousands of researchers throughout the the world. I mean, we have near consensus on this stuff, which is like, good luck finding that in any <laughs> other field, really.
2: <laughs> yeah, maybe the parallel is actually between the person who will just adopt any one of these like, biggest right. recovery things and the person who's like, uh, there was a winter storm this week, where's right. climate change? Like yeah. that person is kind of uh, maybe the same, same, right. same yeah, person who's not looking critically yeah. at the right. uh, science involved. Um, so the experience of writing the book did it make you want to write another book?
4: <laughs> that's a hard question to answer. Um, right now, I'm in this beautiful little um, brief moment where I'm like, oh, this is wonderful. This is amazing. Yeah, sure, I'll write another book. Um, the process of writing was pretty miserable a lot of the time, particularly because I was doing it sort of on the side, you know, while I had a day job, and that that was really tricky. I will never do that again.
2: Yeah, that's very um, difficult.
4: But no, I am interested in in writing another book, So one of the things that I love about writing and why I enjoy being a journalist is I get to learn so many new things. I mean, this is part of it for me and engaging with really interesting ideas and people. And a book is like a really wonderful opportunity to do that. And it's something that I really enjoyed in that aspect. So that does still appeal to me. Um, My husband said that he's going to stage an intervention. So I don't know. (laughs) uh, My agent and publisher is going to have to duke it out with him.
2: (laughs) It's right. It's like... uh... What's that thing they say about having kids, where like there's certain hormones that make you right? forget uh-huh. actually the whole thing? Yeah, and that's why people want to have another kid. Yeah. It's kind of like that. Like yeah. you know, when the book comes out, then yeah. it's just like, oh, of course. Yeah,
4: it's like book tours that for <laughs> for authors, right?
2: <laughs> well, I hope that you get to bask in the glory of the book being out for some substantial amount of time, and then figure out whatever else. Yeah. You're
4: do. Well, I'm planning to take some time off to like really just. Dis- Reassess, yeah, I've sort of been burning the candle at both ends for a while. So, recovery. Recovery, yes. I'm going to recover.
2: All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Yeah. That is it for this week's Long Form Podcast. Thanks to Christy for coming into the studio. Her book is called Good to Go, What the Athlete and All of Us Can Learn from the Strange Science of Recovery. You can check it out everywhere now. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. I'm Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, and our intern, Tyler McCloskey. As always, thanks to our sponsors, Pit Writers and MailChimp. We will see you next week.